0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School.
1: Hello and welcome back. I'm Harbir Singh, co-director of the Mac Institute and a professor of management. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. If you have any questions or comments during the show... Give us a call at one eight four four Wharton. That's one 942 I'm pleased to welcome to my show my next guest, Safi Bakal. Safi is a second-generation physicist and a biotech entrepreneur. After working for three years as a consultant for McKinsey, he founded a biotech company developing new drugs for cancer. He led its IPO and served as a CEO for 13 years. In 2011, he worked with President Obama's Council for Science Advisors on the Future of National Research. He's the author of a new book called Loon Shots. And this book is about a kind of technologies that people did not think uh, were going to succeed but had tremendous impact, uh, not just on firms but also on society. Safi, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thanks for having me here
1: uh you've written a wonderful book, I think it has a very broad application uh and i'd love to get into it. but before that, I just thought uh it might be interesting to learn from you um sort of your trajectory. You went from being a consultant to founding a very successful biotech company. Um, tell us more about the sort of the unusual turning points in your
2: journey well I started my career in academic science and theoretical physics, and um, I came from a family of physicists. So when I announced to them that I was abandoning academics and going into the business world, it was kind of a big shock to the system, and they tried to talk me out of it for a couple of years. But um, for me, it was more about curiosity. At each stage of the game, I felt like when my learning rate had plateaued, then I started to get itchy. So I did one area of science, theoretical physics, for a few years, and I switched into a very different area. And then I switched into something I really didn't know much about 20, 25 years ago, which is the business world. But McKinsey is sort of like a halfway house, a stopping point between academia and running things. You really get trained very well. You learn a lot of the basic uh, concepts, and you are but you're solving problems for a living, like academics do. And then I left after a few years when I, you know, for me, it was a question of do you want to, and I think for a lot of people who are in the consulting world, do you want to be advising or do you want to be taking risk and doing? And so I wanted to do the latter. And I also wanted to do something bigger, more than just about, you know, a, a career or more than, more than just about academic publications. I wanted to see, if I could do something that would give people on Earth more time with their loved ones, with their loved ones, that would be meaningful. So that that's kind of how, how I got from point A to B to C.
1: You know, I, I was curious about the breakthrough that was part of uh, Sinta's uh, sort of uh, footprint as a as a pharmaceutical, as a as a uh, drug company, I guess.
0: What well we worked on
2: uh, new types of drugs for treating cancer. We also worked some in autoimmune disease, and we had uh we pioneered a approach uh, what's called a mechanism, mm-hmm. which is how a drug works, a mechanism class that targeted cancer cells and left normal cells alone and we ran a number of we we had a couple of drugs, but we ran a number of trials. Uh, some were successful, some were not. Um, there was a phase three that wasn't successful, but the drug is—I left about five years ago. But the drug is still in
1: uh, mm-hmm. clinical it's trials. Fascinating. Now. That's and that's uh, fascinating because uh, pharma, the pharma industry, you know, uh, has a lot of investment and uh, in in R and D, and the hit rate, uh, not surprisingly, is not very high. But of course, people go for the the ones that that do well create enormous revenue. So, uh, wonderful to see that you were able to create uh, revenue in a, in a, you know, a startup organization. Uh, that is, so uh, we can come back to that and maybe your book Loon Shots has, uh, has a connection with that. So what inspired you to write
2: about Loon shots? Well, when I <clears throat> first started as a uh, CEO, I read everything I could in the, you know, management literature on the business shelves about how to be a better leader or manager, how to build a good company. And there was so much about culture. Mm -hmm. But what I saw, over the, I was looking for something that had a harder core of science. Mm -hmm. And what I saw over time through various things that I was involved in is that people were not talking enough about structure. Mm Mm-hmm. Here's what I mean by that. Culture is the pattern of behaviors that you see on the surface. Structure is the incentives or the systems or the design underneath Mm -hmm. that drive those patterns of behavior.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And by just focusing on culture, you're just treating the surface, addressing the surface issues. And if you don't understand what's driving them underneath,
0: Mm -hmm.
2: you could miss very big opportunities. Fixing Mm -hmm. culture... Is very difficult. Yes, it's like pushing a battleship. Absolutely, adjusting yes. structure is like turning the rudder.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Much easier.
1: Mm. And and so, can you give us examples of? I know in the book you have several of them. Uh, uh, examples of turning the rudder and um, sort of impacting culture in a way that's course, positive.
2: Sure. You know, one of the things that's very common is that you reward or compensate people by rank. Mm-hmm. You know, you're an associate. If you work hard and do well, you'll become a maybe a vice president. You more you know, a senior vice president, do better, an executive, and maybe someday you'll be CEO. Mm-hmm. Well, what that incentivizes is politics. So
0: mm-hmm. that
2: drives people to stab their neighbors in the back of their fighting their way up the same ladder. And in doing so, one way you do that is you kill your neighbors' moonshots, shots. Those small, crazy ideas that are easily dismissed or ridiculed, but turn out to be, have the potential to be very important. So mm-hmm. by compensating people based on primarily on rank, what you do is you create a political culture right. that's hostile for innovation. Right. If, on the other hand, you adjust various levels and focus the incentives and the designs around taking risk and investing in your project and getting to successful outcomes or good risk-taking and teams uniting around those projects Mm -hmm. and forget about rank. Then what you incentivize is an innovative culture. So what you see on the surface is political culture versus innovative culture, Mm -hmm. but underlying that is how you design your incentive systems. And one thing we've learned in a couple hundred years is that humans respond to incentives.
1: That's fascinating. And I'll come back to that in a second. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Harbir Singh, and my guest is Safi Bakal, author of the new book Loon Shots. If you have any comments or questions, give us a call. The phone lines are open at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. 942 7866. So, Safi, I think that's a great point. You know, they're the sort of creating an innovation culture and uh, creating the sort of the environment where people are taking risk and also not working at odds with each other. Um, have you, can you give us some examples of uh, great ideas that were never executed?
2: Well, I'll give you one that almost got killed because of another sort of maxim that's out there. You may have heard of the uh, kind of fast fail and fail pivot.
1: fast. Yes, I've heard that. Absolutely. You know,
2: fail fast and pivot. And that is very common, and that really rubs me the wrong way because if you look at the breakthroughs throughout history, mm-hmm. they, were, they stumbled and failed many times yes. before they succeeded. I'll give you an example. I don't, do you take a statin drug? I do, yes, yes. Okay, the 35 million people in the United States take mm-hmm. a statin drug. It's probably one of the most important medical breakthroughs of the 20th century. It saved millions of lives. But the scientist that had mentioned it, Akira Endo, when he was starting on his project to develop those drugs, there were some early trials of lowering cholesterol, and they'd all failed. Mm -hmm. Most of the industry said, you can't do this, and here's why. Every cell in your body has cholesterol.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. So working on a drug that targets cholesterol is absurd. Everybody should stop what they're doing. Mm -hmm. The scientist named Akira persisted. Convinced his superiors that he should go ahead, and then te- he, he developed a drug and got to the stage where he tested in animal models, and the models you typically use are either mice or rats, and he tested it, saw nothing. It was good in the lab, but then he tested in animals, zero. Mm-hmm. At that point, everybody gives up. Mm-hmm. Years, he persisted, and what happened is years later, people just understood that the statins lower bad cholesterol only. Called LDL cholesterol. Mm-hmm. Right. As it turns out, rats don't have LDL cholesterol; they mm-hmm. only have HDL, the good cholesterol.
0: <laughs> so the drug Fantastic. had no
2: effect on the rats.
0: Right. Right.
2: So only, you know, if you'd been following the mantra of "fail fast and pivot," you'd been off to the next thing. It's important to persist through a number of these failures to really spend the time to investigate failure.
1: And yeah, I, I couldn't agree rate. more. I think that's a very, very nice, uh, very, very nice example. And uh, actually, along those lines, I was thinking, you know, that uh, the, the counter to the notion of fail fast and pivot is that ex- you only gain expertise by pursuing a particular, you know, domain for a long time, even as an individual. So uh, very often, you won't actually accumulate the knowledge, right? So that's that's part of the problem. Uh, but there may be one more thing that I just want to ask you about, and that is, you know, most organizations cannot tolerate failure, even though failure is part of innovation. How do you how do you kind of reconcile the idea of uh, risk with the idea of delivering performance uh, every quarter in a firm?
2: It starts by recognizing the difference between what I call artists and soldiers, mm-hmm. and you need to separate. The artists and soldiers, and here's what I mean by that: the soldiers are the ones who are in manufacturing and marketing and product design, who are or, 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 or product delivery. They're the ones who are responsible for getting products on time, on budget, on spec, mm-hmm. consistently to customers. Execution,
0: mm-hmm. right?
2: You have the artists who are responsible for coming up with the crazy, wacky new ideas. Mm-hmm. Those are two very different goals with two very different languages. And unless you separate them, and if you're a manager or leader, get clear in your own mind who you're talking to and what the objective is, Mm -hmm. you will do exactly what you just said, which is you will de-risk exactly when you need to be taking risks. And here's, for example, that word, risk. It's one English word. It should have one meaning, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. To a soldier, risk is a bad thing. If you are assembling, uh, you know, preparing for battle, you want the least amount of risk
1: possible. Right, right, exactly.
2: So and to a soldier, if a general says to a soldier, you really de risk this plan, that's a huge compliment.
1: Right, right.
2: Now if a leader says that to an artist, you really have no risk in your art,
1: mm-hmm.
2: that's an incredible insult.
1: Absolutely. You know,
2: the, the same English word "risk" four letters means two completely. I different think that's things. a great
1: point. And actually, by the way, of course, uh, yeah, yeah, at the Wharton School, we are academics in business, and uh, I think what you're making the point you're making is very, very interesting. Because in that, in that, in our domain, because uh, if you're going to talk about something that is relatively, you know, well known, and you want to give a minor twist to it, that's not going to have any impact. Uh, what has impact? is a new way of thinking, perhaps, even though it's not fully worked out. And even though it may not actually work, but it may actually be a stepping stone to something else. Uh, So I think, uh, and that leads me to a question. Um, I think if you've been following the work of Clay Christensen on the innovators uh, dilemma, uh, he talks about how large corporations um, are not geared for disruptive innovation. Uh, disruptive innovation being, I think you also talk about in your book uh, to some extent about that, disrupting innovation being uh, something that is, you know, changing both the the science, the technology and the consumer application. So it's kind of a complete change. Uh, how would you kind of look at it? I think from your the logic you're giving, there's a way for firms to deal with it, yeah, and, it and not too- not be yeah. the targets of the disruptors.
2: Well, if there's two words I'd like to see crossed out of the dictionary, it's disruptive innovation. Okay. Disruptive innovation is something that's easy to understand in hindsight.
1: Exactly. It's an ex-post concept. I completely agree.
2: So, but if you're a manager or a leader, you can't see where something is going in the future. I'll give you an example. The folks working on the transistor at Bell Lab, the scientists, 1946, 1947. Mm Mm-hmm. Today we know the transistor disrupted every single industry, but at the time they were working on surface states, they were trying to create a switch to help telecommunication lines. When they finally discovered how to do that, it was it turns out it wasn't useful for telecom lines at the time because it was too expensive and too unreliable, so they couldn't figure out what to do with it for five years until someone came up with the idea of hearing aids.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: that was the first application of the transistor. So. In 1946, did the scientists who began working on that project say, "I've got an idea for you. Here's my pitch. We're going to disrupt the hearing aid market"? Mm-hmm. Of course not. When Sam Walton decided to put stores in Bentonville, Arkansas, in the northwest, in the middle of you know very you know very uh, rural area,
1: low population density, low income, industry? right? What's that? It was both low population density and low income in Arkansas. So right. most people no, thought it was the wrong that, place.
2: He was a young guy who liked retail and he wanted, like everybody else, to open his stores where all the people are in big cities. He was looking to open a store in St. Louis. His wife said to him, I, just, I don't want to open a store, and attend, you know, I don't want to live in a town with, less, uh, with uh, more than 10,000 people. I only want to live in a small town. Right, right. To yeah, like it's a great
1: people. story in your book. That's right. Uh, please and continue. He, uh, you yes. know, he liked
2: quail hunting, and he liked being married, and so he could do both if he was in this one region where there were the four states that were neighboring that had four different quail hunting seasons, and he had no idea how much was out there. So the reality is it was a loon shot. It was a small, crazy idea that everybody said wouldn't work. So what you nurture those loon shots to challenge beliefs. Right. So you should use the word disruptive innovation if you're a historian looking backwards analyzing history. I think history, that's in which case
1: excellent the insight.
2: did disrupt and Walmart did disrupt retail.
1: Yes. That's but if you're a
2: manager or a leader today, what you want to do is nurture loon shots to challenge beliefs. Use so, disruptive innovation to analyze history, nurture loon shots to challenge beliefs.
1: Safi, I think it's such a great book. Uh, and uh, I would encourage people to buy the book because there are many, many examples. Uh, there are also examples of, uh, you know, nations. And I loved the chapter on why the world speaks English. Um, so, you know, you have a a very nice model. It's a physicist's mind shows through in terms of having a relatively parsimonious model with, you know, just a few uh, variables, but using it to explain a wide variety of uh, of uh, domains. Um, uh, so thank you so much, Safi, for joining the show.
2: Thanks for having me on.
1: Once again, a special thank you to our guests today, Karthik Hosanagar and Safi Bakal. Until next time, I'm Harbir Singh, co-director of the Mac Institute, and this is Mastering Innovation, On Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132.
0: For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.